Welcome to Inspire Church's podcast. We're excited you're listening. Our hope is to inspire you to grow in God's Word, to grow more in love with Christ, and to go be a light wherever you are. To find more teachings or donate to the ministry, visit us at inspirechurches.com. Inspire Church, friends and family, welcome back. We are in week three of our Exile This Is The Way series. If you haven't caught the first two, I encourage you to go back, check out our YouTube page, Inspire Churches, like, subscribe, watch. If you're here for the first time, my name is Pastor Phil. I'm the lead pastor at Inspire Churches. And I want to ask you, are you a gamer? Now, some of you might be like, well, what is that? Do you like to play games? And if so, what kind of games do you play? Do you prefer maybe RPG role-playing games? Are you the kind of first-person shooter game? Shout out to all the Call of Duty family watching this morning. Or maybe you don't like video games at all, but you love yourself some board games. Now, we got to be careful when it comes to board games. I've had to do some couples counseling, including myself and Jimmy Lit after playing board games. I mean, those can bring families, couples to like the brink of a breakup. But nonetheless, uh, my favorite game of all time was a computer game called Command and Conquer. Now, I really loved this game. It was a strategy game. And the concept of this game was to build up your forces, uh, expand your territories, defeat all the enemies, and ultimately dominate the map. In fact, I love games like that so much that for my bachelor party, that's what I requested. I requested a strategy game for my bachelor party. Now, I'm not sure what you did for yours. In fact, I'm not even sure I really want to know what you did for yours. But my bachelor pad, my bachelor party was cracking. I had my closest friends with me. We gathered around the table for an all-nighter of a hotly contested board game of Risk. Now, some of y'all might know what Risk is. All you need is some dice, literally a board with the globe on the board, an entire map, and you're in for a night of trying to conquer each other's territories and rule the world. Now, this might not sound like an ideal bachelor party to you. It might not even sound like an ideal night to you. But at some level, we all have something inside of us that wants to build and protect, guard and expand command and conquer. And you may not be the head of state. (laughs) You may not be a king, a queen, an emperor, uh, or a president, uh, but we all have homes. We all have jobs. We all have office spaces. We all have friends and families, little territories and little domains that we call our own. And we are all innately a territorial people that can't help but build our own little kingdoms and empires in the corner of our own little worlds. It's innate. In fact, it's biblical. Uh, uh, It's actually something God has given to all of us as his image bears. But here's the question. Will we build kingdoms in his image or will we build kingdoms in our own image? This really is the significance of the empire and the city of Babylon. 
You see, more than just a historical empire, uh, Babylon carries with it theological significance throughout the entire scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, uh, Babylon is not just a historical city on a map, but there is a theological symbolic significance carried with the city of Babylon. You see, in Genesis 11, Babylon is the Tower of Babel, a, a tower of human ingenuity fueled by the sinful pride of man. In Isaiah 47, Babylon is called the Queen of Kingdoms, declaring, I am and there is none beside me. And in Revelation 17, Babylon is called the mother of all prostitutes. Think about that. Babylon is called the mother of all prostitutes, a center of pride, immorality, idolatry, cruelty, and greed. You see, Babylon symbolizes the arrogance of human achievement that denies God, persecutes God's people, and builds empires in its own image. And just as God delivered the exiles from the historic Babylon, God will deliver his church from the prophetic Babylon. This is the way. Now, before we get into the scripture reading and finish off the second half of chapter two, if you missed last Sunday's sermon, let me just give you a recap, really simply. Number one, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had a disturbing dream. Number two, the wise men of Babylon gathered together, but they could not interpret the king's dream. And finally, number three, but God revealed the contents and the interpretation of that dream to an exile ambassador named Daniel from Jerusalem. Listen, this was King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Daniel chapter 2, verse 31. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver, its belly and thighs were bronze, its legs were iron, and its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. That was the dream. Now we will tell the king what it means. Your majesty, you are the greatest of kings. The God of heaven has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and honor. He has made you the ruler over all the inhabited world and has put even the wild animals and birds under your control. You are the head of gold. But after your kingdom comes to an end, another kingdom inferior to yours will rise to take your place. After that kingdom has fallen, yet a third kingdom, represented by bronze, will rise to rule the world. 
Following that kingdom, there will be a fourth one, as strong as iron. That kingdom will smash and crush all previous empires, just as iron smashes and crushes everything it strikes. The feet and toes you saw were a combination of iron and baked clay, showing that this kingdom will be divided. Like iron mixed with clay, it will have some of the strength of iron. But while some parts of it will be as strong as iron, other parts will be as weak as clay. This mixture of iron and clay also shows that these kingdoms will try to strengthen themselves by forming alliances with each other through intermarriage. But they will not hold together just as iron and clay do not mix. During the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. Then King Nebuchadnezzar threw himself down before Daniel and worshipped him, and he commanded his people to offer sacrifices and burn sweet incense before him. The king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal his secret. Then the king appointed Daniel to a high position and gave him valuable gifts. He made Daniel ruler over the whole province of Babylon, as well as chief over all his wise men. At Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be in charge of all the affairs of the province of Babylon, while Daniel remained in the king's court. Thank you, Janine, for finishing that incredible chapter. For the rest of my message, I've divided the last portion of chapter two into two sections. The first is the image of man, and the second and final section is the kingdom of God. And I'm entitling this message, The Idolatry of Empire. The Idolatry of Empire. You see, in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he saw a large statue uh, sectioned in body parts made up of different various metals and materials. If you remember, there was a head of gold. There was a chest and arms of silver. There was torso and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and finally feet mixed with partly iron and partly clay. Now, if that feels a little odd to you and a little ancient and Old Testament, uh, well, guess what? You don't have to look no further than last week's CPAC convention. Now, if you're a Republican or a conservative, no offense, but if you saw that convention, you saw that there were a particular group of conservatives that literally willed out a golden statue in the image of former President Trump. So it's not too far-fetched to believe that there are people who will turn empires into idols. Now, this image of a man represented several successive human kingdoms, uh, starting with 
Babylon. And so to the reader, this was actually history. Uh, It's the story of human empires with global aspirations. Uh, It's Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. It's Persia and King Cyrus. It's Greece and Alexander the Great. It's Rome and Caesar Augustus. But for Nebuchadnezzar, this wasn't history. Uh, For him, for Nebuchadnezzar, this was prophecy. This was God pulling a Draymond Green. God was flexing on King Nebuchadnezzar. You might say, what do you mean by that? God was showing Nebuchadnezzar who the true king of king was, and he was demonstrating his sovereign control over the empires of men. And so no wonder why King Nebuchadnezzar was so disturbed, anxious, full of worry and unable to sleep. Why? Because in his dream, he was confronted with the fact that he was not the king of kings. In his dream, King Nebuchadnezzar was confronted with the fact that he was not all powerful, that he did not have all control. In the dream, King Nebuchadnezzar saw the fading glory of his empire. And as a result, the Bible says it troubled his spirit. Let's say that again. King Nebuchadnezzar saw the fading glory of his empire, and as a result, it deeply troubled his spirit. You see, like Nebuchadnezzar, if we don't have our eyes fixed on Jesus, the revelation of our own powerlessness, the revelation of our own limitations, uh, uh, the revelation of uh, the lack of control in our lives can cause us to feel a deeply seated anxiety about the future. The reality is that we can't control tomorrow. This is especially true when it comes to dealing with what I'm calling the idolatry of empire. You see, this statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream was a literal idol. Um, God was illustrating in this dream the human tendency uh, 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 to build idols out of empires. God was revealing in this dream uh, the human tendency that we all have to look to the state to provide for us our ultimate sense of safety, our ultimate sense of security, our ultimate sense of identity. Listen. I don't know if there is any book in the Bible more relevant to the times that we are in right now than the book of Daniel. In fact, I believe America's current political climate is being used by God to expose the idolatry of empire no matter what side of the aisle you sit. So here's the million dollar question. How can we recognize that idol so that we could repent and look at Christ, right? How can we recognize the idolatry of empire in our own lives so that it could be exposed, so that we could repent, and so that we can place Jesus on the throne? 
Now, I'm going to give you three indicators, but I'm tailor fitting these three indicators to the American church. So if you belong to the church in America, and if you are inspired church, that means you do. uh, I am tailor fitting these three indicators to us who call ourselves American and Christian. And so if you're taking notes, I want to give you three ways Uh, Three indicators that you might be dealing with the idolatry of empire in your heart. So I pray that you would watch this with an open mind and an open heart and with open ears and allow the Lord to speak to you. Three indicators. Number one, centralism. I define centralism as the idea that America is playing a, a, a central role in redemptive history. Uh, you might have an idol of empire if you believe that America is playing a central role in redemptive history. Let me break that, let me break that down for you a minute. Do you believe that this country has been uniquely chosen by God? How about this? Do you take the prophetic words in the Old Testament that were meant for Israel and then apply it to America as if God was speaking to America today? Listen and listen closely. In the new covenant, there is no holy nation in a geopolitical sense. God doesn't demonstrate his manifold wisdom through a nation but through his church that was purchased by the blood of Jesus. Let me say that again. Decentralize America in your gospel and replace them with the church. God chose his church whom he bled and died for, the global church throughout the world to reveal his manifest wisdom, not a unique, special country. You know, I'm part of this, uh, so I'm preaching to myself. I want you to know that. But American Christians can be so self-centered. What do I mean by that? Uh, Anytime we experience a disruption... Anytime we experience discomfort, anytime we experience some type of persecution or even this pandemic, we try and scramble to find how to explain it in the scriptures, right? Because we're out of control, because we're losing power, we try to look into the scriptures and apply it to America, We say, this must be the end times. Look at all the suffering that is taking place. Like We must be in the final days. But that is so arrogant and misplaced of us and so centric of us to do that and say that. Why? Because there are other Christians in other nations. In North Korea, there are Christians that have been put in internment camps. There are underground churches in China. There are churches in the Middle East that are being persecuted in Africa. And they've been discovering and they've been going through this kind of discomfort and persecution way longer and much harder than we have ever. Because we have centered our country and not the church, our idolatry has become our theology. So number one, an indicator that you might be dealing with an idolatry of empires if you are a centrist in your thinking when it comes to 
your particular state, nation, or country. Number two, if you're taking notes, syncretism. You might be battling the idolatry of empire if there is a co-mingling of your Christian identity with your political affiliation. Let me say that again to everybody on every side. The Democrats say amen, the Republicans say amen, everyone in between said amen. You might be dealing with the idolatry of empire if you've co-mingled your Christian uh, identity with your political preference. Let me break that down to you to help you expose that idol. You see, when we confuse and conflate the empires of men with the kingdom of God, there is probably an idol. When we think that the way to expand God's kingdom and express God's kingdom is through empires of men, there's probably an idol. When we question someone's salvation, when we call out someone's Christianity because they did not vote the way we think Christians should vote, there was probably an idolatry of empire. In 1974, Billy Graham addressed over 2,000 leaders from across the globe. Standing before these leaders and surrounded by 150 flags of different nations, Billy Graham said this, when I go out to preach the gospel now, I go as an ambassador for the kingdom of God and not America. To tie the gospel to any political system, any secular program, or any society is dangerous and will only serve to divert the gospel. I like to tell American Christians that we shouldn't lean on the left or the right. We shouldn't even fall in the middle, but we should be above where the kingdom of God is. Resides. Listen, you might be dealing with the idolatry of empire if there is a type of centrist in you, an American centrist. Number two, if there is any syncretism in you, the commingling of your American, your Christian identity with your American politics. And finally, number three, you might be dealing with the idolatry of empire if there is the evidence of tribalism, centrism, syncretism, and finally, Tribalism. What is tribalism? Tribalism is a strong loyalty to one's own tribe, party, or group. A, a culture, listen, that values loyalty over honesty. I got to say that again. Tribalism is a strong loyalty to one's own tribe, party, or group. A, a culture that values, you ready, loyalty over honesty. And I love this about Daniel because he was only loyal to God and the kingdom of God. As a result, he was able to speak truth to power no matter who was in power. Let me say that again. Because Daniel loved Babylon, he lived for Babylon according to the scriptures that called him to bless Babylon. He was not from Babylon. He was of God's kingdom. As a result, Daniel was not afraid to speak truth to power no matter who was in power. Let me break this down practically for all of us watching. If you're quick to point out the idolatries of your political opponents, while at the same time turn a blind eye to your own political affiliations, then you are probably dealing with 
the idolatry of empire. I got to say that again, because some of you went to the bathroom and you need to hear this again. If you are quick to point out the idolatry of your political opponents while at the same time willing to turn a blind eye to the idolatry of your own tribe, then you're probably dealing with a kind of idolatry of empire. Let that sting for a little bit. And I know there are going to be people watching and saying, well, you're talking to me. No, no, I'm talking to all of us. I'm talking not to you, not to me, but to we, especially in the American church today. You know, during the Cold War, Billy Graham again, he framed the Cold War. Some of you actually might remember this. During the Cold War, Billy Graham framed the Cold War as the Christian values of America versus the atheism of the Soviets. Graham later admitted that this was a mistake as Graham saw that it caused evangelicals to see everything about the Cold War and politics through spiritual lenses. And this is key. Thus, whoever was toughest on communism was anointed as God's leader. Uh, Whoever was toughest on communism was anointed as a kind of Christian warrior who God had chose and who was on God's side. And as a result, listen, the personal faith and the personal character of the politician got thrown to the side as long as they were tough on communism. Billy Graham himself laments framing it in that way. Because he spiritualized it so much that it created a confusion in evangelicalism and caused some people to be more loyal to the protection of the empire than to the kingdom of God. Listen, it is right for King Nebuchadnezzar and for Babylon to be disturbed by this dream. They should be. In fact, God intended it to be a disturbance to Babylon. It is right for Nebuchadnezzar to be full of anxiety, to not be able to sleep, to be troubled in his spirit. But what frightens Nebuchadnezzar encourages Daniel. I got to say that again. But what frightens Nebuchadnezzar encourages Daniel because Daniel's allegiance was not to Babylon, but to a kingdom that was not of this world. You see, Daniel was an exiled ambassador living in a foreign land. And the reality that all human empires will one day dissolve and that God's kingdom will reign forever should not only encourage him in Babylon, but should embolden him and cause him to preserve. Can I just say this? Whenever we feel like we're losing control, Whenever we feel like we're losing power, behaviors begin to well up inside of us and it creates a panic. And so we do what we can to try and create narratives that things are really in control. But you see, what Daniel understood as an exiled ambassador is that his allegiance wasn't to empire. It was to kingdom. As a result, when that empire began to dissolve and collapse in the dream, Although Nebuchadnezzar was disturbed, Daniel was encouraged because he knew that God was in control, not Babylon. You see, 
when we have a choice to live for something temporary or everlasting, we'll always invest our lives in the thing that remains. I'm going to say that again. If you had a choice today to invest your life in something that is going to fade away, a passing fad, or to invest your life into something that was everlasting, you would have no problem putting your life in the thing that you knew was eternal. That's the difference between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. You see, Daniel's investment was not in an empire of man, but in the kingdom of God. And in this dream, seemingly out of nowhere, Nebuchadnezzar sees a stone cut out from a mountain that strikes the statue. The the stone is described as alien, (laughs) out of this world, not cut by any human hand. This stone collides with this image of a man and causes it to collapse, dissolve, and blow away. And ultimately, this stone then transforms into a great mountain that fills the entire earth. You see, this is where Christians that read this dream are tempted to skip to eschatology. What's eschatology? Eschatology is the study of end times. See, we read the story and we see the kingdom of God crushing the kingdoms of men and we see the kingdom of God expanding and we immediately jump to Revelation, the end times. That's where we want to go. We go to eschatology. Uh, We immediately begin to think about the second coming of Christ and and the judgment of the world that one day God is going to make all things new. All human empires are going to be destroyed. They're going to be crushed into dust, blown away, and we're going to live in bliss for eternity. And so when we read this dream, we jump to the end times. But this is so crucial, so critical. I remember telling you at the very beginning, we weren't primarily studying Daniel for its history or its prophecy, but we were primarily studying Daniel for its practicality, how to live in Babylon without looking like Babylon. This is key. We typically want to jump to eschatology, the end times. But we must be careful not to skip salvation in a hurry to judgment. I'm going to say that again. We must be careful not to skip salvation and hurry to judgment. Like the sons of thunder in the Gospels who wanted to call down thunder on that city. Jesus, they they did not want anything to do with you. Shall we call down fire on them? Like the sons of thunder, some of y'all are so eager to see the world destroyed and burned. You know, these sinners are going to fry and God's going to make all things new and he'll show everybody. And we're so eager to get to the end times. But we must not skip salvation to go to judgment. You see, this is good theology. I want you to understand this right now. Here it is. This is good theology. The kingdom of God actually arrived at the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, the kingdom of God actually arrived at the coming of Christ, the life, death, and resurrection 
of Christ. And and this is going to blow your mind. The decisive blow dealt to the empires of men will not be in the end times, but happened when the enemies of God did not know and did not see that by the cross, Jesus was defeating our enemies and putting them under his feet. I want you to know The decisive blow dealt to the empires of men and the enemies of God did not come by way of war or a vote, but by Jesus laying down his life. In fact, one of my personal favorite scriptures is found in Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15. I encourage you to go through Colossians chapter 2 this week. But 13, verses 13 through 15 reads like this. Listen. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Now here it is, pay attention. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Let me ask you a question. When did Jesus triumph? It will not be at the end times when he's coming with a sword and destroying the kingdoms of men. No, it was when he was on the cross. His triumph happened when he laid down his life. Apostle Paul in Colossians tells us that laying down his life, he actually disarmed the enemies and the authorities and made a public spectacle of them. When he had the crown of thorns, he was being crowned. When he was put on the cross, he was being high and lifted up. And there was a sign that declared him to be the king of kings, the king of the Jews. And he had a sash and he had a robe. And even though you may not want to look at your king in that way, on the cross, he was crowned. He was lifted up and he defeated and destroyed the works of the enemy and the empires of men. You see, the kingdom of God crushing the empires of men into powder is not coming in some future date, but has already happened on the cross. I want to bring this to a close by sharing with you the gospel from a bird's eye view scripture. You see, in Genesis, in a garden, we were made in the image of God. We were not only given God's image, but we were made to rule in that image. In fact, scripture says that Adam was given dominion over the creatures, the birds of the air, the creeping things, the crawling things, the animals and and, and the animals in the fields. You see, in the garden, we were made to rule in the image of God. Yet on a tree, we distorted that image when we disobeyed God and we began to rule in our own image from that point on. And so on the cross, Jesus restored God's image and reestablished God's kingdom in the earth. Now, all those who would put their trust 
and faith in Christ Jesus, we have now been compelled to repent of our idolatry of empire. And we have been commissioned to expand God's kingdom, not by democracy, not through theocracy, not by monarchy, communism, or socialism, but by laying down our lives so that others might live. And here is the absolute best part. We aren't ruled by a tyrant who places demands on his subjects, but by a king who first laid down his life for us. As exiled ambassadors called to resist the idolatry of empire, our motivation to live in such a way is the everlasting nature of the kingdom and the, fat, the sacrificial love of our king. I'm going to say that again. This is so important. Pause it. Write this down. This will be our final thought. As exiled ambassadors resisting the idolatry of empire, our motivation to live in such a way is the everlasting nature of the kingdom of God and the sacrificial love of our king. This is the way. Thank you for joining us for this week's Inspire Churches podcast. Don't forget to share or subscribe to join us every Sunday. You can keep up with Inspire Churches through Instagram at Inspire Churches or on Facebook at facebook.com slash Inspire Churches. To support the ministry, you can click on the link in the description or visit us at inspirechurches.com for more information.